0: We're in Judges 17. We have concluded an examination of the life, the tragic life of Samson. Samson is the last judge recorded for us in the book of Judges. He's the last judge that we have mention of. He's not the last of the judges. That would be Samuel who kind of transitions the judges to the prophets. Samuel kind of ends up uh, being the last. But this is the last, Samson's the last judge in the book, which then makes the last five chapters of Judges quite interesting. In fact, if you've thought Judges has been a weird book up until now, I mean, buckle up. It's going to get really, really weird. I mean, five chapters of just like, I can't believe that this is even in the Bible. It's very hard, by the way, to find commentary on the last five chapters of the book of Judges. Some of the most famous preachers, D.L. Moody, refused to teach from these five chapters, was repulsed by them, upset even, grieved Adam Clark, an, an old translator, Certain parts of the text he even refused to translate from Latin into English because of how repulsive it was. Some people will frame the last five chapters of the book of Judges as being a bit of an appendix to the book. I don't really think so because there's some weirdness, especially from the vantage point twofold. One, there are no judges. (laughs) It's odd. A book of Judges, we have five chapters where there's not a judge At all. Secondly, what makes it strange is that chronologically, Judges has been very consistent. So we've been looking at 400, 450 years of Jewish history. We've been examining it. We've been studying it. Uh, I think Samuel, the author of the book, lays it all out kind of in a chronological uh, method until you get to the end. And then we completely break. Not only do we not have a judge in the last five chapters, weird for the book of Judges, but we completely abandon any type of chronology whatsoever. In fact, the last five chapters record for us two particular stories that as far as the chronology go, should be placed at the beginning of the book and not the end. And that's actually a bit of my own theory as to why we find it at the end and not the beginning. For the subject matter that you'll find in these five chapters is so difficult. It's so unsettling. I'll even use the word, Shocking and disturbing that I think Samuel realizes that if he were to put these five chapters at the beginning of the book of Judges, by the time you get to the first judge, you'd be like, I want nothing to do with this anymore. Like really, I'm not kidding. If this was at the beginning where it should be in chronology, I don't think you get through the first five chapters, let alone the rest of the book. And not only that, if you do get through the first five chapters, you'll be so shocked and repulsed by what you've read that then when God raises up deliverers, you're like, I'm out. These people don't deserve deliverance. In fact, if you're going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, You should judge these people as well, not provide a deliverance for them. Again, we'll get to next week, not not just as a, a flavor, a taste. We'll run into a story where we've got a Levite who has a concubine who gets raped and murdered, and he gets so upset about it, he cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends it throughout Israel. It's crazy. Again, if Samuel had placed these five chapters chronologically where they belong at the beginning, A, I don't think you get through it. You don't read the rest of the book. And two, if you do get through it, you can't understand God's mercy or why he would demonstrate grace. I think there's a lesson to that that we'll unpack as we work our way through. Judges 17 and 18 which we'll look at this morning, uh, illustrate for us, if you're a note taker, you like to outline things, uh, r- present for us really the state of, of, of the spirit of Israel as they've begin to settle into the land. It's their spiritual condition and it's alarming. It's shocking. It explains to us why we've seen these 400 years of Chaos. The last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21, again, another story we'll get to next week, illustrates for us the depravity of God's people. Really, they're just moral corruption. So spiritual corruption leading to moral corruption. And we'll find a refrain, we've seen it throughout the book of Judges, That there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Meaning that we have this spiritual corruption leading to a moral corruption because there's no authority. Everyone's an authority unto themselves. There is no king. Meaning that the remedy to spiritual corruption and therefore moral corruption is a king. Now, it's not a king, it's the king. They needed Jesus. Well, let's get into the text. We're going to fly through it, okay? I'm going to explain it. We're going to unpack it. We're going to work our way quickly through two chapters. And then with the time that we have, we're going to try to draw some spiritual application, some meaning for us. Because I do think that there is a lot of meaning uh, and a lot of application, and I think some very relevant things. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 17, now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. We don't know anything else about this man. He's Ephraimite. His name's Micah. And he says to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, well, here is the silver with me. I took it. Then the mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. Oh, what a, what a weird beginning. We're probably in the early days of Othniel, one of the first judges. Joshua has just died. We're introduced here to a man, Micah. Imagine this being the first chapter of the book. And you have this man, Micah, who has this interesting relationship with his mother, who happens to be quite wealthy. She has... 1,100 pieces of, she- uh, of silver, she- shekels of silver. She's wealthy, she's no, and it's been stolen from her. So imagine the scene, the setting. She has this, this savings, this chunk of money and it's been stolen. Someone has taken it out of her tent. Someone has ripped her off. And as a result, once she's discovered that she's been, this has been taken, she, she, she curses. Yeah, we got cursing in the Bible right from the beginning. She curses whoever stole my money. Well, Micah, the son, hears the curse, and he's thinking, well, snap, that's not good. I mean, she just put a hex on whoever stole the money, and I stole the money. This isn't a good dynamic. And so he comes to his mother. Hey, mom, you know the money that was stolen, that you put a curse on the person who did it? Well, that was me. I'm sorry. Uh, I have the money. And she goes, well, let me try to reverse the curse, mama's boy. And she pronounces a blessing. A bizarre intro. So, when he had returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son. So she's like, I'd, I'd set this money aside for you. Why? To make a carved image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus, he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver. And gave them to the silversmith and he made it into a carved image and a molded image and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod, which is the garments of the priest and household idols and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, again, placing this chronologically at the beginning of this period of history, coming off of Joshua and the conquest of the land, the settling of the people, we give this story about Micah and his mom and this chunk of money that is, in the, that, is that is used for a particular purpose by Micah with his mom's blessing to do what? To make an idol, a graven image, not just a graven image and an idol, but they like, they established their own mini religion here. They got the idol, they've got the shrine, they've got the molded image, the carved image. And then he's like, I'm going to pick out one of my sons. and I'm going to put him in the attire of the priest. Like this is shocking behavior. Why? Well, if you go back for a moment to Exodus 20, You don't have to turn. I'll turn there and read it for you. But you know, you find yourself in like the Ten Commandments. They're like the most basic understanding. Like, here's the terms of agreement. God, man, you're my people. I'm your God. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to dwell in your midst. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. This will be great. We'll be a light into the world. Works. Now, within the Ten Commandments, there's like this marital covenant. And right from the beginning, God spoke these words, verse 1 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, just in case you didn't know who I am. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make, the second one, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the waters under the earth, you you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing mercy to the thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the Lord, the, the name of the Lord, your God, and that, that, that ends up being the second you get to the, the, the rest of the Ten Commandments. First two, first two, I'm the Lord, your God, you shall have no other gods before me you shall not have carved images. Now, now, understand the dynamic here. When we talk about an idol, when we talk about a carved image, it's not, it's not as though that the image or the idol was a God unto itself. What it was, is it was a physical representation of God. Like, like going all the way back, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and they're like, hey, we don't know what's really happening. The children of Israel, they're around, they're like, well, we, we should worship God. We should do this thing. And, uh, and so they take Aaron <laughs> and they're like, we want you to make for us um, an idol, a graven image, the golden calf. Were they worshiping the golden calf? We, we, yes, in their worship of God. They wanted an item, something they could focus, something they could relate to, something they could come and bow before. It was a physical representation of God. And God from the beginning is like, I don't want any physical representations of me being made at all. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do this. And then they get to the land. And what's the first thing we see here? The creation of an idol to be used in the worship of Jehovah against specifically the instructions of God. Not only that, but we find like Micah appointing an Ephraimite to be the priest of his own shrine. He builds his own tabernacle is what's happening here. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. This is at the very beginning. Now there was a young man, verse seven, from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite. And we're staying there. We need to pause. Again, I, I kind of debated how I wanted to do this. The identity of this, this Levite is provided for us at the end of the chapter. Um, and it's kind of to be shocking and where it's presented. So you'll read about this Levite and how he does things. And then you'll get to the end. You're like, oh, my goodness, this is who this guy is. And it's, there should be some shock value. But let's just get it out of the way. Who is this Levite? Well, flip to verse 30. Of chapter 18. A lot of story happens. We'll get to it. But we're told the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan. The son of Gershom. The son of Manasseh. And his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan. Until the day of the captivity of the land. Jonathan the son of Gershom. The son of Manasseh. Now. You're like okay, great, Zach, who's that? That doesn't really help me. I gotta be careful how I say this because, because I, I don't wanna do anything or say anything to cause you to, to distrust the inerrancy of scripture. It's an important thing that we believe that scripture as it was originally written is infallible and it's in its in its in its beauty and its accuracy, that there is no, there is no flaw in scripture as it was written. Now that doesn't mean though, that there aren't mistakes that's made from the original text to the translation. It's why if you've been around Calvary 316 for any period of time, I like to go back to the original language. I like to try to unpack uh, the meaning of words. Hebrew is a beautiful language. Uh, Koine Greek, which is where we get most of the new Testament is, is, probably the number one language ever devised by man, and English not so much, especially Southern English, you know? So so you get, you know, you get examples of where like, well, our language just really bastardizes the idea that's being presented in the original text. Uh sometimes you run into like malicious mistranslation. And and there seems to be an abundance of scholarly opinion that we find this right here. Multiple places, Exodus two twenty two, several places. Um, the grand, well, the son of Moses is Gershom and the grandson of Moses is Jonathan. Well, you, well wait, it's the son of, of Manasseh. In the Hebrew, there seems to be an, an added in, in the middle of the Hebrew word, because even the Jewish people were repulsed by the idea that this was the family of Moses. So to protect the family of Moses, they skewed the meaning of the word. In fact, as an example of how this works within translation, while the New King James Version translates this as Manasseh when it should be the son of Moses, the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, the ASV, Wycliffe translation, all translates this as Moses. Like the point here is that the Levite we're introduced to is the grandson of Moses. Okay? okay. So as things get really gnarly in our story, and it kind of becomes a head-scratcher, this isn't just a normal guy. This isn't just a random Levite. This is the grandson of Mo. So there was a young man Jonathan from Bethlehem and Judah of uh, the family of Judy was a Levite he was staying there the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed and Micah said to him where do you come from So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I am on my way to find a place to stay. So this Jonathan, this Levite, uh, is kind of tired of being a Levite. He's in Bethlehem, Judah. He's where he's supposed to be. He's doing the Levitical things. Again, this is early in the story. And he's like, yeah, I'm just not feeling this. And so he leaves. He doesn't know where he's going. He's just wandering. I'm just going to find some other gig. So he stumbles across this guy, Micah. So Micah says to him, dwell with me. I mean, he set up his own little religion. He's got one of his sons as the priest. He's like, I got a Levite here. We can up this. So he says, dwell. Be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year and a suit of clothes and your sustenance. It's a pretty good gig. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of the sons to him, so Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest. Again, the grandson of Moses. Total idolatry, false religion, wickedness. He lived in the house of Micah, 10 shekels in a shirt. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord, again, Jehovah, the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. So this man, Micah, he's like, you know what? I don't want to go to Shiloh, to the place of meeting. I don't want to go to the tabernacle. I know God has this thing set up. He's got these instructions laid out. He's got a way in which God wants me to go and worship him. But you know what? This is not very convenient for me. And you know, I really don't think it's necessary. I don't want to worship God, Jehovah the deliverer, but I'm going to do it kind of my way. And he builds a shrine, he builds his own tabernacle, and then he gets a Levite, Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. This has to be okay. And he declares, I've got this thing set up. I'm worshiping God. The Lord will bless me. Well, we'll see. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. Again, gives us some time, timing, some context. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Which is, which is true and false. Dan, the tribe of Dan, had been given an allotment, a territory. There just happens to be, according to the first chapter of Judges, a people group dwelling there, and the Danites didn't man up to, to take the land. So now they're kind of in this situation. They're like, well, we've got the land. This has been our allotment, but it's really not ideal. It's not very conducive. You know, let's maybe find some other stretch of territory. It'd be too hard for us, you know, to seize what God has given us. Let's find something else. That's kind of what's happening here. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtel, to spy out the land and search it. Very interesting. It's very similar to the way that the children of Israel originally came to the, the land. They sent in the 12 spies, spy out the land. They came back, 10 of them were like, no, there's giants in the lands. We can't do this. Joshua and Caleb are like, victory's ours. Let's go. Same thing. Five spies. Let's find a place that we can settle. So they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah and lodged there. Micah's place is happening for some reason. You're traveling through Ephraim like you just, you end up landing at Micah's Micah's dwelling. And they're at the house of Micah and they recognize the voice of the young Levite. Again, Jonathan's a famous guy, this grandson of Moses. So they turned aside and they said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? Like, what's the gig, man? What's the deal? So he said to them, thus, and so Micah did for me. He has hired me. I become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God, that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. So the priest said to him, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely. And in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, there was no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone. So these five men get to Laish, this town. They're like, hey, this is a nice place. And not only is it a nice place, it's kind of a quiet place. It's removed from any type of protection. They don't seem to have much of an army. This is a great place for us to come and settle. So the five men departed and went to Laish. Then the spies came back, verse 8, to their brethren at Zorah and Eshel. They brought the report. So they said, Arise, let us go against them, for we have seen the land. And indeed, it's very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people, a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Again, Laish will be translated later, be renamed Dan, the the city of Dan. The ruins you can actually go and visit today. Verse 11, and 600 men of the families of the Danites went from there, from Zoran and armed with weapons of war. So they're going to go up. They're going to take this this, this town, this area. They're going to settle there. They went up. They encamped in kirjath Jereem in Judah. Therefore, they called that place manea dan to this day. There is west of Kirjath-Jerim. Just some, you know, that's a freebie. So they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they come to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land of Laish answered and said to their brethren, do you know that there is in these houses an, an ephod, household idols, carved image, molten image. Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man to the house of Micah and greeted him. So the five spies, they coming back through, there's Micah's house. They're like, you know, we, we scoped out this place too. The guy's working his own religion. He's got a priest, he's got idols, he's got an ephod, he's got his whole, this whole thing set up. This is perfect. So the 600 men armed with weapons of war who were from the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. They're the posse. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up, entering there. They took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. When they went to Micah's house, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household items, the molded image. The priest said to them, what are you doing? Come on, guys, what's the deal? And they said to him, be quiet. <laughs> Put your hand over your mouth. You should be very careful the next word you utter, son. And come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household Of one man, or that you may be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel. So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, the household idols, the carved image, and took his place among the people. So the Danites are migrating north. They come to Micah's house. Jonathan the Levite's got this gig set up for Micah. He's his priest. They've got their idols, they've got their way of worshiping. It's a good thing. The Danites come by and they're like, hey, we're gonna take this whether you like it or you don't. But we got a gig for you right now. Micah hired you for 10 shekels in a shirt, some sustenance, some clothes. But instead of being a priest for like one dude and his family out here in Ephraim, why don't you be our priest for a whole tribe of Israel? Come with us. And so Jonathan is like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm. he's a priest for hire. And a bigger congregation became available, a bigger church, more resources, This is a better gig than the gig I had. Sure, I'll go. So they turned and they departed and they put the little ones, the livestock, the goods in front of them. They're anticipating some type of uh, a conflict, maybe from the rear flank from Micah. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were near the house, near Micah's, they gathered, they overtook the children of Dan. They called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and they said to Micah, what ails you? That you have gathered such a company. And he said, you have taken away my gods, which I made. And my priest. And you've gone away. Now, what more do I have? How can you say to me what ails you? Micah comes like, you've taken my gods. And I made them. They were mine. By the way, side note. If someone could take away your God. Not a good God. Someone could take your priest, not a faithful priest, but Micah has been ripped off. So the children of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you use your, you lose your life and the lives of your household. Micah, step back. So the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. That was nice. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. They had no defenses. They had no ties with anyone. They were sitting duck. And it was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they built the city and dwelt there. Again, this is not their territory. This is wicked and evil and completely against the purposes of God. They called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father. They're not very creative who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The children of Dan set up for themselves, we've read this, the carved image, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of Dan till the day of the captivity of the land. Amazing, would have been shocking. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time. And this is the context that the house of God was in Shiloh. Understand that Dan, when you look at the tribe of Dan historically, kind of from the macro perspective, uh, Dan is a wicked tribe. God judges Dan harshly. Uh, Dan ends up being um, a very corrosive element within the national identity of Israel. Now, while the, the country was unified, to a a degree under the the, the kingship of Saul and then most definitely under the leadership of David and then Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, makes some stupid decisions and some of the tribes are like, we're out and we're gonna separate. In fact, the 10 northern tribes, all the tribes that lived in the northern part of Israel, seceded, they broke, leaving the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, to be Judah. So when you're reading the Old Testament, and you'll run into, especially during the kings, uh, Judah, the capital of Jerusalem, Israel is the 10 northern tribes, the 10 tribes of Israel. The problem that they faced is well, in order to worship God, you would have to go outside of the territory back down to Jerusalem, because that's at that time where the temple was. So what happens? The Danites are like, we've got a solution. We've been worshiping God our own way for generations. And the origins of it go back to Moses' grandson. God's kind of blessed us. We've got our our own priesthood. We've got our own idols. We've got our own place of worship. We've got our own ephod. Like, we're set. No need to go to the temple to worship God. This way, we can do our own. And they introduce idolatry to the 10 northern tribes, and God judges that with the Assyrian Empire. I mean, a brutal judgment. This is an important story, for it gives us the origins of all the stuff that happens later in the Old Testament. Well, how does Dan become so corruptive? This is how. A random guy named Micah decides to start his own religion, hires Moses' his grandson, and the Danites are like, we'll give you a better gig. Come be our priest. And this is the story. This is how it worked. So from a, a macro perspective, as, as far as our, our, our understanding of Scripture and our reading through Scripture, there's, this is an important uh, text, because it explains things that happens later on. For us, that's not very relevant. For us, though, that there is an application, there, there's kind of an interesting undercurrent to the story that you should not miss. If you whittle it all down, what Micah did, what the Danites adopted, what Jonathan was a part of, and their heart, they didn't see a problem with it. They were worshiping Jehovah, but they weren't worshiping Jehovah the way that Jehovah wanted to be worshiped. Again, for us, I guess the easy point of application is that God is as interested in the way in which you worship him as your worship. God is not cool with you worshiping God as you want to and the way that you determine to be right. God has made it very clear how he wants to be worshipped. How he wants his people to worship him. And you're like, well, I'm worshipping God. I'm just doing it my own way. it's more convenient. It works better with my schedule. It, It works with the baseball's travel, you know. I worship God the way I need to. And God's like, I'm not cool with that. Beyond that, though, I think that there is a deeper idea that is just... At the core, the mistake that's made, again, we're not dealing with false gods, but the mistake that's made is that God was viewed as a means and not the end. God was used as a means to an end. And not the end of the means. God was not the central focus. Man was. And we can take one big colossal step backwards for a bigger application, can't we? Because the greatest lie that's ever been told and which has manifested all kinds of wickedness and evil has been the singular lie that man can be his own God. And what's interesting about that lie is that Satan will even use God the worship of man. How so, Zach? The goal of Christianity is for Christ to be glorified and honored above all. He is the end, the purpose, the point. You have two branches of Christianity at work today. You have progressive Christianity, which I think is more regressive, but that's for neither here nor there. You have liberal Christianity that preach Jesus, but what do they preach in regards to Jesus? We worship Jesus, we come to Jesus, we honor Jesus, we bow before Jesus, why? So that Jesus can make my life better. He can solve social issues. He can he can make me feel better about myself. We come to Jesus, but what's the bent? The bent is 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 Jesus the end of the means, or is he the the means to an end? The end is not Jesus. The end is you feeling better about yourself, or you having your problems worked out, or you no longer dealing with depression. You're still the focus. Now, on the flip side to it, evangelicals, you know what we sell? We sell give your life to Jesus. Why? So that you get to go to heaven. Now, yeah, we can backdoor it like he'll make your life. He promises to give life and that more abundantly. But the sales pitch is give your life to Jesus and you get to go to heaven and not hell. It's a get out of of hell free card. Come to Jesus. But what is still the essence of it? Me. Escaping eternal punishment and fire. You know why you should come to Jesus? Because he made you and he died to redeem you. And you might be glorif- he might be glorified through you. I've listened to one pastor. He said, are you willing to give your life to Jesus, to follow Jesus, so that he might be glorified, even if that meant you went to hell. (laughs) Well, I don't know, man. That's really kind of like... But you know what's being articulated? You know what the heart of it is? The purpose of man is to bring glory and honor to God. Period. Period. End of sentence. Do you know you can bring glory and honor to God and your life be miserable? That the condition of your life isn't a requirement to you bring honor and glory to God? But we get down in our sorrows, we get down in our stuff, we get down in our trials, we get down in our tribulations. Why? Because we look at God for what he can give me. 10 shekels in a shirt. A good gig. Good life. Eternal life. As opposed to what should it be? Glory and honor of God. Full stop. Humanism. It's what was sold in the garden. You eat this fruit and what? You can be like God. And then what does religion do? It gives you the worship of God to exalt self. Hey, here's a bunch of things that you can do. And God will be pleased. But what is the onus? It's on the things that you do and not the work that he's done. Hey, there's a bunch of things that you can sacrifice to show that you're worthy. Well, you're not worthy. And your sacrifices don't mean anything. And in fact, they distract from the one that does mean anything. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. You see, Jesus didn't didn't die to make your life easier. He didn't die so that you could live forever. Jesus died so that you could be filled with his spirit and bring God the glory he's always wanted from your life. And yet we come, and as the famous preacher says, we will sell out for 10 shekels and a shirt. We will use God as a means to our end, as opposed to saying, you know what, God? God? my life is not my own. I want to bring honor and glory to you. It's interesting, and whether it's liberal Christianity or like super conservative Christianity, both have minimized a central idea to scripture. It's called holiness. We don't talk about holiness. We don't talk about personal holiness. We don't. And yet, we are called to be holy, for God is holy. We are called to be distinctly different, for God is separate. Holiness is the manifestation of my life's not my own, and my sole purpose is to bring you glory, to bring you pleasure, to bring you honor, and how I live, and how I speak, and how I move, and how I worship, how I read my Bible. I'm not reading my Bible for any other reason that God has said, this is how we can get to know each other. And he delights in spending time with you. Do you pray to get your will done in heaven so that your will might be done in heaven as it is on earth? Or do you pray because you just want to spend time with God? Like what's the purpose of your prayer? To get God to fix this, to get God to do that, to get Him to intervene here, or to do that, to, to to work there, or is it? Hey, you're not the means to my end. You're the end, and you're all I want. This is how Paul could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Literally, it's it's a. Formulaic way of saying it in the Greek: "To live is fill in the blank. To die is to get more of the very thing I'm living for." That's that's the framework of it. You plug into the spaces and see if it works. To live is money. To die is more money. Does that work? To live is security. To die is more security. Like you just, what's the only thing that works within the formula? What's the only thing that you get more of when you die that you can have right now? That's Jesus Christ. To live is Jesus, which makes death nothing more than more of what I've always lived for. What a terrible story. The beginnings of idolatry. And then it's contrasted, right? Right? They set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made. All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. The whole time, God was right there saying, come, come. But they didn't. They wanted to do it their own way. And they suffered terrible consequences as a result. So, Father, Lord, we just let that settle into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I would tell you, read ahead, don't. You might not come back next Sunday. I'll tell you, it's such a challenge. It's such a challenge because our sales pitch, our sales pitch as a church to the world has been a lie. Come to Jesus and he will fill in the blank. That's using Jesus as a means, as opposed to come to Jesus because he's worthy. And that's it. Come to Jesus. You'll have a better life. Come to Jesus, he'll solve all your problems. Come to Jesus and he'll save your marriage. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your kids. Come to Jesus and you'll have the get out of hell free card. Again, it's all a means to an end. Come to Jesus because he loves you and he died for you and he wants to be with you. Come to Jesus because it's the only way your life will honor God. Straightforward, man. That's a gospel without bull. Poop. It's truth. Come to Jesus not for what you get out of him. Come to Jesus because he's worthy. On that happy note, but true note, May you be filled with God's spirit. May you walk in his grace. May you kick off the shackles of a religious obligation for you to do this or not do that. And may you just delight in a person named Jesus. Because I tell you, the more you hang out with him, the more you get to know him, You can't stay the same. It's hard for jerks to hang out with Jesus for a prolonged period of time. I got nothing else. You're dismissed.